or if you find yourself falling into habits or patterns that you feel like you just cannot stop, like you're reaching for the alcohol a little more, or you're reaching for the sugar a little more, or cravings, or you're just eating feels out of whack because you're doing things to comfort and calm down that activated stress system. And you don't realize that's why it's happening. Hitting pause is a really good thing to do. Hey, everybody, it's Christine Marie Mason. Welcome to the Rose Woman podcast, where every week we talk about something that can bring a little bit more freedom, wholeness, or happiness to our beautiful embodiment from birth to 100. This week, I'm so happy to welcome Aviva Ram MD, a Yale trained board certified family physician who specializes in women's health, obstetrics, pediatrics, and integrative medicine. She's a midwife, she's an herbalist. She basically straddles and brings together the best of both worlds allopathic and integrative medicine. And her new book, Hormone Intelligence, is an instant New York Times bestseller, exploring the impact of the world we live in on women's hormones and health. You might have heard about uh, leaking phthalates in water bottles and what that can do, or harmful chemicals in beauty products and skincare. You might have heard about the impact of hormones in our meat and dairy products and all kinds of things that are really interacting with our human biology in what appears to be a pretty unhelpful way. So Dr. Aviva works to help women take empowered ownership of their bodies, health and health care, so that they can harness their natural healing abilities while knowing how to effectively navigate conventional medicine. She's the mother of four and a grandmama of two and just an all-over exceptional healer. So please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Aviva Ram. I'm so glad to talk to you. It's been a while. I think the last time I saw you was at ABC Home when you were releasing the thyroid book. Yeah, and we have such a deep connection in our mutual friend, Adam. In Adam and in Paulette and Gabby Bernstein, like the whole community of people who are sort of tending the, what I like to think about is the integration of physical reality, material reality, and science, and the spiritual, psycho-emotional, intangible side of life and how they flow together so beautifully. And then you also overlay it with a sort of a socio-cultural thing that I really like in your writing and work where you're where, where you're looking not just at the individual but you're looking at the systems in which individuals rest cultural systems but you know and that really changes I think the way we understand our embodiment that we're not just alone thank you so much for what you're reflecting back to me of me it feels like a huge gift sometimes when you hear somebody else describe what they see of what you're doing. It gives a name sometimes to something that I don't necessarily put a name to, but do. So it's really a beautiful gift. So thank you for that. So new book. Yeah. Hormone intelligence. This might be a fine point question, but what's the difference between knowledge of something like factual knowledge and intelligence about it? To me, knowledge is facts, right? Knowing is a different thing, right? Knowing is something that we have deep in our gut, our bones. It's just that sense of alignment when something is right. I think wisdom is the lived experience of putting our knowing into place. And I think intelligence can be looked at. I, I kind of say 
I'm such a word person. I think of intelligence as both a noun and a verb. So the noun to me of intelligence is really the information of that deep knowing. So for example, the noun of intelligence is just the sort of fundamental evolutionary arc of female bodies from time immemorial. We have this hormonal intelligence that really hasn't changed over the eons. And then intelligence is also the intentional, deliberate actualization or actionable nature of putting that into place. So the intelligence to know that we have this innate intelligence and live by it. You said something in there that reminds me that every cell in our body is the accumulated intelligence of human evolution, that you contain all prior generations in your embodiment and the seed of all future generations. And what's so cool is when we think about that as female bodies, as women, I mean, we literally have our eggs, our ova already in place from when our own mothers were gestating us and theirs were in place when their mothers were gestating them. And it goes back and back and back through this arc. And then we also in our cells have these things called mitochondria. And the genetic information of those mitochondria are matrilineal. They only come through our mother's line. So we really can trace this evolution of women's bodies, women's hormones. And the cool thing is with the MR, with the RNA and the mitochondria, men have those too. So men carry this matrilineal information. Hey, I, I have to go back to some basic science. I want to say about hormones, for example, like I find that to be like a throwaway line and a young woman I know is having acne and and the throwaway line is, oh, it's just hormones, you know, or something like that. And I don't think like you're using mitochondria and hormones, we, that, that a lot of people actually understand what hormones are anyway, and what role they're playing in the system. Can you, can you say a short bit on that? Absolutely. Yeah. So hormones are simply chemical messengers. I mean, even at the most basic, like as a Yale medical student, when we take endocrinology 101, the definition is hormones are chemical messengers. So estrogen is one kind of set of chemicals. There's actually three different kinds of estrogen, but each one of those is its own little molecule. And then testosterone has its own little molecule and progesterone, its own little molecule and insulin and cortisol, et cetera, et cetera. They all just have a different chemical shape. And what happens is, is a hormone is released from one gland. A gland is simply a hormone secreting organ in the body. And then that hormone gets into the bloodstream and travels to its destination, where once it gloms on or locks onto that target destination, it sets off a whole domino effect of actions. So it's like it gets released. Let's say you have a hormone that's released in your pituitary gland. It travels to, let's say, your thyroid or your ovary, and it binds almost like a lock fitting into a key, a key fitting into a lock is sort of a simple way of thinking about it. And once that gear turns, something happens in the cell, the door opens, and 
all these next events take place. So let's say with our ovaries, estrogen is produced, progesterone is produced. Each one of those then travels through the bloodstream and maybe stimulates breast growth, maybe stimulates breast glands to start lactating when we have a new baby so or, or the growth of them and then other hormones stimulate them to release milk. So it's a really just this beautiful chemical messenger situation. And in the book, and when I talk to my patients, I liken this to the game of telephone. So when we were kids, we all sat in the circle and you know we'd whisper something to the person next to us. And then that message, ideally, in a perfect world, would get around to the last person and they would say the message and it would be the same thing that was said at the beginning. But of course, for the game of telephone, it's really funny when it gets completely twisted along the way and we all laugh at the end of it. But with hormones, when that chemical messaging isn't happening clearly, the message isn't clearly going from the pituitary to the thyroid or the pituitary to the ovary or the adrenals to wherever that cortisol needs to go, the end result is a little bit like a garbled message. We have irregular periods. We don't produce thyroid hormone and we feel irritable, exhausted, we gain weight, et cetera, et cetera. So it's actually not so funny when it happens. Um, But that's kind of exactly what hormones are and do. Using that analogy, when the original gland decides to emit a message, like to send a message, that probably can be messed up by environmental factors or biological misreads. And then as it's traveling along the pathways, there's probably opportunities for it to get garbled. And then there's the place where the receiver, like the lock key, might the trans the translation might happen wrong. When things are going wrong in modern life, like if my biology is well attuned to live in a small tribe in a natural world, and now I'm living in this new world with all kinds of unprecedented inputs, like the last 50, 60 years have unprecedented inputs. It's it's probably confusing the body at some level. It is. So we have a lot of ways that this can happen. So I'll give you two examples. One is the impact of stress on the adrenal gland, which is our stress response gland. And stress or chronic inflammation also cause the adrenal gland to produce a hormone called cortisol. This is an essential hormone. It's like the one hormone we really, really can't live without. And when our adrenals are pumping out this extra cortisol, there are actually three ways that cortisol can interrupt with the functioning of thyroid hormone. So it can tell your brain to stop stimulating the thyroid it can tell your thyroid to stop producing the hormone, or it can actually tell your cells, la, 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 don't listen to the hormone and don't do anything. So there are three ways that just stress can impact cortisol that can make your thyroid go wonky. Um, Endocrine disruptors, which interestingly, stress is now considered an environmental toxin and endocrine disruptor, anything that disrupts hormones. Endocrine just means hormones. But we also have an enormous number, like tens of thousands of environmental chemicals, many of which, if not most of which, can act as what are called endocrine disruptors. They can either they look like estrogen or they look like other molecules of our hormones, and they actually can either overstimulate. So we have too much hormone function. So for example, with estrogen, you can get too much stimulation of your breast tissue or too much stimulation of your tissue lining your uterus, which 
if significant enough, is a known cause of breast cancer or endometrial cancer. You can also have the function blocked. So for example, you can have a lot of fluoride that you're getting through your diet, your toothpaste, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe you're getting too much fluoride and it blocks because it looks so much like iodide. It blocks your thyroid from making thyroid hormone. You know, I know it can sound like chicken little and like, oh my God, the sky is falling. And unfortunately, conventional medicine is just so in its nascence of even acknowledging this. So scientists in environmental medicine recognize the impact of stress as a toxin or these environmental endocrine disruptors on our hormones. But conventional doctors, well, just to give you one actually blatant example, and this was like 15 years ago, I was interviewing at a prestigious medical institution for OB-GYN residency. And the OB-GYN interviewing me, older gentleman who had like has many accomplishments to his names, well-known in the endocrine world. He looked at me and he said, well, he saw that one of my interests um, for research was how endocrine disruptors affect women's reproductive health. And he looked me right in the eyes and he said, now, Dr. Rom, you don't believe that BPA crap, do you? And what was really interesting was about 10 years later at that same institution, an Ivy League, the whole lid got blown open on how dangerous BPA is for reproductive health. So, you know, it's slowly happening, but that was in the research arm of that medical institution. It's not like OB-GYNs or, or even midwives are really aware to help women who are trying to conceive or pregnant to avoid these disruptors, which we then pass on through pregnancy. I try, I try to have a little empathy for the modern medical system because we're dealing with this massively multivariate problem set. It's not just like that it's complicated. It's invariably complex. Like you try to pull over here or squeeze over here and something pops over there and it's almost impossible to con do, a, do a controlled study. <laughs> you know, this sort of sense of like, all right, I'm eliminating plastics. I'm eliminating, I'm only doing clean beauty. I'm, you know, not eating toxic processed food. But then I added in, I'm taking tons of, of fungal, like fungi, like mushroom supplements and stuff like that. And that's supposed to be good for me. And yet, what what's that? You know, that how do I control a direct causative effect, I guess? Yeah. I mean, I think there are so many of them. And, and of course, I'm a physician and I have a huge amount of compassion for what drives people to become physicians and what physicians go through to become physicians and what the practice of medicine is like, especially for those who are sensitive to patient care and some of these issues. But that aside, you know, I think we can all do only what we can do. And for me, you know, and what I really try to emphasize in my work, my communication with people with female bodies, with my patients, et cetera, through my book, is that none of this is your fault, right? If you have endometriosis or polycystic ovary syndrome or periods from hell or whatever, you know, fertility challenges, it's not your fault. And doing all the clean and green things, if you will, I'm doing air quotes here, y'all, doing all the clean and green things is really important for our health. And it's really important for planetary health. But some people are going to do all the clean and green things. And they're still going to end up with some of these problems. And some of people are going to do all the clean and green things and still need the pharmaceutical or the surgery. And so I think it comes down to like, let's do what we can. Let's not go crazy so that we feel neurotic and stressed all the time. And also let's be incredibly compassionate with ourselves because most of these exposures that we're getting are far beyond just what we're doing 
you know, in our own homes and lives. That said, there are some good studies that show, for example, that reducing drinking out of plastic water bottles and plastic cups and changing your sunscreen to one that doesn't have phthalates in just a week can dramatically lower the levels of those plastics in your blood that we know. So, you know, it's complex and we just sort of do the best that we can and make the choices that we can afford to make and have the bandwidth to make. But I do believe that these choices do make an actual difference. Yeah, I love that you are pointing to research studies as well. So uh, there's a there's a thread in there I want to pull on a little later around blaming the victim in healthcare and wellness, not just healthcare but wellness, the wellness world too. Yeah. I don't want to go off track because this is so important. So we had stress and we had environmental chemicals as two of the key things that can really disrupt the normal or healthy signaling between, of these messengers. Are there other things you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I would say that circadian rhythm disruption is huge and it acts as a stress to the body. So when we are not aligned with a basic biological rhythm, so for example, we're not getting to bed at a reasonable hour and moreover, we're on blue light emitting devices that affect our circadian rhythm. So circadian rhythm, just to back up, we all have biological rhythms. As females, we have the menstrual cycle rhythm, which is a 29-ish day, give or take, depending on your body, rhythm. And we have bigger biological rhythms, like most of us are going to start menstruating somewhere between about 11 and 15 years old. Most of us are going to go into menopause around 51 to 54 years old, right? We have these bigger life rhythms. But then we all have these 24-hour rhythms. And They are all triggered by the rotation of the planet in relationship to the sun. And so we have these 12-hour day rhythms, 12-hour night rhythms, depending on the time of year or whatever that rhythm is, you know, at that time of year. And all of our organs, in fact, every cell in our body is what's called entrained to these rhythms. So your microbiome has its own relationship to the circadian rhythm where um, you can actually jet lag some of the gut bugs that you have by being off of the rhythm. And some of those gut bugs then don't work so happily in your gut and you can get gas or bloating or constipation or IBS. Our detoxification system, our liver, works according to these rhythms. The reason we poop during the day and not at night is because our digestive system is entrained to this rhythm. So when we're disrupting this rhythm chronically, which we all are, a lot of the same things that happen when we're under high levels of chronic stress or just even average levels of chronic stress, we get the same disruption in our cortisol and that can affect our cycles. It can affect our menstrual cycles, but also as perimenopausal and menopausal women, it can make our symptoms worse. It can disrupt our metabolism so much so that getting less sleep, even just a couple of nights a week, getting under seven hours of sleep can equate to several pounds of weight gain a year, sugar cravings, et cetera, et cetera. So I would say, you know, everything we can do to nourish and honor the natural rhythms of the seasons of the day along with the seasons of our own life can really go a long way to supporting our hormone health and reducing our stress and having healthy metabolism. We have less inflammation. Less inflammation means more hormonal health when we're nourishing that circadian rhythm. So simple things are just 
try and have a regular time that you get up each day and a regular time that you go to bed each night and try to get no less than seven hours of sleep, but interestingly, not more than nine hours of sleep. So the seven to nine hours is a sweet spot and stay off of all blue light, at least for one hour before bed. Kind of just like use that evening time to involute your energy, to bring your energy back into yourself so that you're calming down, started, you know, start darkening your overhead lights, switch to lamps in the evening. Don't eat within a couple of hours before bed. All of those, even ideally three to four hours, all of those things can help you to simply reset your circadian rhythm. I love that jet lagged biome, my little jet lagged I know micro bugs. Well we feel it, right? <laughs> when you get jet lagged, we all know it. Your hunger is different and you poop differently and it's partly the microbiome is actually getting jet lagged. It's so weird, but it's cool. I spend a lot of time on the farm in Hawaii and there's no windows and the it's just screened in cabin. And so you're up with the sun and you're and they call nine PM Puna midnight because, you know, by that time everyone's asleep. There's nothing else happening. There's nothing to do. And I always feel phenomenal after about three or four days in that environment. And also there's no internet. So. <laughs> yeah. I, no internet is a really big thing. You know, I, I was telling you, I took this two and a half months to just do a reset. And I'm grateful. I've, you know, at a point in my life where I can do that and kind of put my work on a gentle hum and keep up with the basics. But I really took a step back and one of the big things was stepping off, spending a lot of time off of electronic devices, and it was transformative. I actually felt my brain retrained to like my own rhythm as opposed to this external kind of cadence. Well, there that kind of goes to the question of the stress and the hormones piece again. So there's a healthy kind of stress where you're being challenged and it's helping you grow your capacity. How do you tell the difference between the healthy stress and the stuff that sends your body into alarm? Yeah, I think we know, you know, and I, I really think we know. And so I'm just going to ask you, and then I can share mine if you like, but how do you know? How do you know when you're in flow with that little bit of stimulated stress that feels really good? And then how do you know? when you're crossing that line and so this isn't so great for me anymore. The first thing that comes to mind is confusion. There's almost like there's a slideshow carousel running across my prefrontal cortex. Like I can't kind of get, there's too many things to track so that I'm my mind is jumping around. And when that's happening and I can't focus, then I know that I've got too much that's on my plate. Then I have a bunch of practices to kind of regulate and whether it's list making or prioritizing or chunking or affirmations or mantra or breath work that kind of or organize me. So that's one. I notice that self-care goes away. Like the first thing that happens is I'm in reaction to the external environment rather than being in my center and in my power. It's very, it's a very subtle thing to track, but that's what it is for me. What about you? Yeah, it's very similar for me. Um, when I wrote my previous book, Adrenal Thyroid Revolution, I actually used the imagery of like when you have too many tabs open on your computer and then your computer does that spin because it's in overload and there's nothing you can do but basically shut down and reset, restart your computer. Like you need a reboot because it's just too, it's systems overload. So for me, I feel it in my body. So it's not so much a mental cognitive, but I actually get this feeling of almost like 
an agitated motor in my solar plexus. It's like an anxiety that I associate with being overwhelmed. Like, oh, I can't get it all done. I can't ever. And then I might start to have like some negative thought processes about myself. So that's one thing. And then definitely self-care goes away and my locus of power shifts. So I'm not as internally oriented. I become externally driven. But for me, it's a very physical sense. It sounds like for you, it's a physical cognitive. And for me, it's a physical gut kind of like above my gut, but that, yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you're in your body a lot. I am. I I did this practice for a while that was called, well, it was the do what you say you're going to do practice. Hmm. And, And so I didn't allow myself to change my mind. Every time I said yes, I showed up and did the things I said I was going to do. It made me so conscious of what I said yes to and what made it onto that list that could eventually lead to anxiety. When I was doing everything that I sort of had passively or unconsciously said yes to, I was flat out running from the time I got up until the time I went to bed at night until I learned how to modulate my yes and make it mean something and deliver a conscious and clear no. And my team started thanking me. I mean, it like it really rippled out. Yeah. It's a huge thing for me. I, I say, if it's not a hell yes, it's a hell no. <laughs> and it's like such a physical feeling for me. Like it's such a deep resonance of, I call it alignment. Like when I know that my mind and my heart and my intentions and my body, they're all, I'm all, I'm feeling it all the way through. And One of the things that I like to do um, in my work with women is, and of course I have to live and walk my own talk, is to also just be deeply aware of why we're saying yes when what we really need for ourselves is to say no. And that comes, I think, a lot out of, well, for me at least, and for a lot of the women I work with, a deeper sense of fear or scarcity. And it may be if I say no to this, well, you know, opportunity only knocks once, which is not true. Um, If I say no to this, I'm not going to make the money. If I say no to this, he or she isn't going to like me as much. There's always something about ourselves that I believe is in some kind of fear or scarcity when we say yes, when we really need to say no. So stepping back and trusting that one can say no and not have FOMO, (laughs) like not feel like you're losing out. FOMO, completely. Uh, somebody told me their new mantra is JOMO, the joy of missing out. Yes, I love that. Like let other people have their good experience. They're part of the same uh, eyes of divinity. You don't need to do it all. I like that you were saying the solar plexus sensation is your sign because it is a kind of a another vital sign. So maybe each person has their own set of things that they watch out for and that becomes their customized personal vital sign indicator. I know you talk about the period as the sixth vital sign, and you also say you are your own best healer. So maybe we're coming, kind of triangulating to what's your own personal vital sign chart? Yeah, I call it a body barometer. And it, for some people, it may not be a body, it may be a thought barometer. But I mean, I don't really separate mind and body. But I think we, you know, back to what you asked me, like, how do, how do we know when we're crossing over from that sweet spot of what is called eustress, E-U, so like good stress where we may be in flow or even we may procrastinate and leave something to a deadline because that little bit of adrenaline kicks us into like getting it done versus when we are just not feeling 
good anymore. And I think for us to look at the kinds of language we're using when we talk to our partner or our girlfriend, or even just in our own heads, like if you're finding yourself saying things like, I'm at the end of my rope, I can't take it anymore. I'm overwhelmed. I'm stressed out. This is just too much. I have too much on my plate. Like all the million little ways we we know, but then we don't listen to it and do anything about it. So if you find yourself feeling those ways that show up, however it shows up for you, or thinking those thoughts, whatever those thoughts are for you, or if you find yourself falling into habits or patterns that you feel like you just cannot stop, like you're reaching for the alcohol a little more, or you're reaching for the sugar a little more, or cravings, or you're just eating feels out of whack because you're doing things to comfort and calm down that activated stress system. And you don't realize that's why it's happening. Hitting pause is a really good thing to do. You stress like euphoria? Is that the root word of that? Um, you means good. So you stress um, is just a term like EU in Greek is, it means happy or good or well. Yeah. Yeah. Like eudaimonia or euphoria. Okay, great. Thank you for that. That's a good, that's a good new word. Yeah. Eustocia. Eustocia means healthy birth versus like dystocia or distress. So dis in front of something, either D-I-S or D-Y-S means when something is becoming dysfunctional, but you in front of it means. So like one of the things we might consider like you stress is planning a wedding, right? It's it's a good stress, but it's stressful. Or getting ready for a presentation that you're really excited about, but it's also a little bit anxiety provoking. Anything that kind of is good that you want, but gets a little bit of that adrenaline going, even like being on a roller coaster, that would be considered you stress. It gets adrenaline pumping out. It activates your stress response system, but toward something that you actually enjoy or want to engage in. Okay, great. All right. So I'm monitoring my sleep, regulating my circadian experience. I'm watching my environmental toxins and I'm doing this internal body barometer stress monitoring so that I'm kind of sitting in alignment. Uh, what are some signs of hormonal disturbance, even when I'm doing all of those things? How do I know that the hormones are out of whack? Yeah. So, I mean, it depends where you are in your life cycle. We have different signs and symptoms that show up that things are a little or a lot off track. So, Obviously, if you have an overt medical condition related to your reproductive system, fertility challenge, periods from hell, endometriosis, PCOS, a thyroid problem, any of that, by definition, is a, is a hormonal disturbance. The way I look at it is that for the more kind of run-of-the-mill, is it my hormones or is it not, is as people in female bodies, our female bodies may, will, I mean, they inevitably will cause us to be aware of cyclic changes. So it may be, let's say it's three days before your period and your breasts feel a little more tender and maybe you're craving a little chocolate and maybe you kind of just don't really want to go to that party. You just really want to stay home. That would be to me signs that my hormones are shifting and something is happening, but it's okay. Like it's not causing me to be disrupted out of my life or to have to lay on the sofa and like get a hot water bottle or it's not disrupting me functionally. Let's say your breasts are so tender that you have to, you can't wear your bra and you feel like, oh my God, I need like a diuretic or something. Or let's say that it's three days before your period or five or eight and you're just like, 
you're losing your shit. You don't want to talk to anybody. You're miserable. You're unhappy. You know, you can't go to work because you're just so anxious or depressed or you're not sleeping or it's not just that you have want a little bit of chocolate. It's like, you know, you're hitting bottom on Ben and Jerry's and then going for the bag of chips and the bottle of wine. Something is way more disrupted. So for any woman at any stage of her life, if she's experiencing things that relate to that stage of her cycle or stage of her life, it's likely something cyclic and hormonal. And if it's causing you discomfort, not just awareness of it, but actual discomfort, or if it's taking you out of your flow in any way, that to me is a hormone imbalance. I think most women I know are probably having imbalances a lot of the time because the amount of complaints about the things that you just described is pervasive. I mean, women have always, if you look back, for example, on the shelves behind me, I have, you know, herbal books that go back hundreds of years. And you can look in those herbal books, including one original book that does that. But you can look in those books and they talk about female symptoms and things that come up. But statistically, we know that those have just exploded in the past few decades. And a lot of women are experiencing a lot of hormonal distress. And, you know, sometimes, Christine, I wonder, let's say that you're somebody who, let's say you missed a night of sleep because you're having hot flashes and you're perimenopausal or menopausal and you're having anxiety about getting a little older or whatever the random things are that kept you up at night. If you knew that you could just take the next morning off and not have to show up at a job or get your kids off to high school or whatever it is, take care of your older parents, because so many women are sandwiched now between you know, teenage and high school kids and older parents. If you knew that okay, yeah, this sucks. I'm awake. It's four in the morning. I'm staring at the ceiling. I effing hate this. But if you weren't also worried about the fact that you had to be up in two hours and do all that stuff, you might actually find that it was easier to sleep. Or let's say you do have some PMS and you're just like, oh, I just feel like if I have to deal with people today, I'm going to bite their head off. And what I really want to do is watch Netflix reruns and stay at home and drink tea and snuggle in with myself and write in my journal. And you could do that. Then I suspect a lot of people's symptoms would not be as significant as they are. So I think part of it is the interface of female biology with a world that is based on male dominated biology and capitalism. And we just don't, there is not good synchrony. I mean, even postpartum, so many women struggle with the fact that they have to go back to work because we don't have work leave for moms in this country. So how much postpartum and anxiety is driven by just that asynchrony between what we actually need and what we're actually, how we're actually able to live? You are speaking my language on that. I mean, we, we have a woman, you know, I think they've, one male employee. It's very interesting to work in an entrepreneurial environment where everyone talks about their cycles and where they're at and what they need as if it was a normal part of life. And we have a little bit of a joke that says, you know, I know if you take a couple of down days and go internal when you need them, that when you're ovulating, you're going to be working twice as hard anyway. So it like, <laughs> there's not even a disadvantage as a human to allowing people to be where they are. Yes. And, the, and it's actually shocking, like the number of missed work and school days due to menstrual problems that actually end up affecting the careers that women choose 
or their advancement in their careers is astonishing. And so if we actually stopped with the biological reductionism and like, if you need this, it's because you're a weak female, rather than thinking, all right, we're going through something every month and maybe we need a little actual shift in our, how we approach it. I mean, just to give you an example, when I was 16, I had an opportunity to go spend a little time at a First Nations um, reservation. And in this place, the women went off to a moon lodge. And it was definitely, the way it was presented was like, menstruation is unclean. And so the women have to be separated. And that part was not okay with me. But what was really interesting is the women were like, hell yeah. Like they would go, they were totally relieved of cooking duties. If they had a little toddler or a baby, they'd brought the baby up there. And then they hung out with each other for three, five days in the moon lodge away from everything. And they were like, this is amazing. And I'm not suggesting we do that. It's not realistic or practical, but how do we honor what we're actually feeling without judging ourselves for it? And how do we build more female entrepreneurial environments that honor and allow for that too? I think it would just be a completely different world. My friend, um, Christina Ryan is writing a book on menstrual activism and I saw some of the early early chapters and, you know, she talks about this moment when that practice of self-care got turned into like isolation. And if you're isolating, it must be because you're dirty and got weaponized. The practice of self-honoring becoming weaponized is, is, was a problem and kind of led to all kinds of menstrual taboos. So there's a way of, I like what you're saying about reinviting it and honoring self. I feel like there's a strange thing in this uh, remote work world that actually kind of creates an opening for that or has created an opening. Oh, yes. Okay, so we're going to re-engineer and redesign the outside structures and change our expectations of what's normal and be advocates for how to live a full embodied life within those structures. I love that. You also say in the book, our planet, your body, like how they're same or how that's related. Can you speak to that? Yeah, part of that is recognizing that we are influenced by circadian rhythms. The things that that drive the natural world are actually also influencing us. We're not separate from that. And also the things that affect our planet, right? It's no secret that we're experiencing climate change. It's no secret that we're experiencing just an overload of environmental exposures, um, so much so that things that did used to be fringe are making their way into medical research environments like BPA, for example. So it's a very circular in that whatever is affecting our planet is going to show up in the microcosm of our bodies as women. And then whatever we do to our bodies is going to, you know, in turn impact the planet. I don't really see women's bodies, and I don't mean this in a sort of romanticized anthropomorphic way, although I love that too, but I really do see our female bodies as barometers of planetary wellness. And that's where this idea of menstruation as a sixth vital sign comes in. Our, and it's not just menstruation, it's our all of our hormonal lives. Because, you know, hormones are these minuscule, I mean, if you if you think of like the amount of estrogen in your body, think about like taking one drop of blue dye and dropping it in an Olympic swimming pool. It's, you know, parts per million 
and parts per micromolar. It's so tiny. So the little things that we're being exposed to, that our planet is being exposed to, we're also being exposed to, but also because those changes are so minute, we are like the canary in the coal mine. They show up in us, which is why most autoimmune conditions are affecting women, why most hormonal problems are so obvious in us. It's also a really beautiful opportunity, particularly in our menstruating years, to remember that every single month, your body is giving you, in a sense, a readout or a printout of how things are going. So every single month, you have an opportunity to to sort of check in and go, okay, is this blueprint kind of happening the way it's sort of naturally meant to? And if it's not, what are the things that I can pay attention to, to bring myself back into that alignment. I love that. There's an eco I'm big into spiritual ecology. I'm getting my PhD in, in that. And so I'm working on, just read a study that said the loss of microbiome diversity in humans in your gut mirrors the loss of mammalian species biodiversity. It does. And it's really so significant. I mean, originally my book, my original title and the entire working title for the book the whole time I was writing it was hormone ecology as one word with the E and hormone capitalized so that it was hormone ecology. You know, I'm even sort of playing with what does a new medicine for women really look like that is ecosystems based, where we look at all of our internal ecosystems and our external ecosystems and how like as a Venn diagram with us in the middle, those all influence each other. And the only reason it didn't end up being called hormone ecology was that my publisher was like, nobody's going to know what that means or how to spell it. You're kind of making up a word. And I was like, well, we kind of need to make up a word because this is really what it is. you know. And so for me, in a lot of ways, I'm building my, my brand, if you will, my work and seeing my patients now through this lens of hormone ecology. I, I will be an advocate in spreading that term. Hormone ecology is, is it's kind of where we started, the false narrative of the isolated self, as if you can treat your own body in a, as a little container or a widget that just gets plugged in. It doesn't work. You know, I'm completely nested in my family system, in my cultural system, in the supply chain, in, in everything. And it's all acting on each other all the time. And to become aware of that, I mean, you just start to make different choices. I will say, I went on Amazon, and I looked at your reviews, and most of the reviews are phenomenal. And the only thing that people ding you for is being too woke, which cracked me up, or uh, this is a rich girl's diet. Like this is a uh, uh, hormone-free, organic. And you know, my response was, you know what's very expensive? Dealing with a body that's been messed up by hormones and has long arc health implications, like trying to get our priorities straight. And in the places we can wrestle back input controls from a system that's been designed to optimize other things, like the food supply has been optimized to cut costs and optimize profits. It's been optimized to deliver goods across the planet without them rotting. It's been optimized to do things at scale so you get volume cheaply. And so you have to say, but I'm trying to optimize for my health and the planet's health. There are things that you can wrestle back, but until you understand that the way the systems have been designed are to optimize things that are other than your own health or your well-being, it's hard, it's hard to do it. 
I don't read my reviews, so thank you for sharing that. It's helpful. At some point, I was just like, you could, I'm the person who will read a million good ones, and then the one I take so seriously, the one, you know, like, oh my gosh, I failed at this. Um, you know, the two woke, that's pretty funny. I don't know exactly what that means. It's, I don't use a lot of woke language, and I like, I kind of have an issue with the wokeness of our culture on some level. So I think they were referring to, just to be clear, I think they're referring to the things like you really took some time in the beginning of the book to speak to what you mean by a woman's embodiment and and basically be accepting it's like people who have the the stack of genitalia and hormonal systems that are commonly considered female but you you took some time to say use whatever language you want in terms of identifying as a male or a female or well if that's what's too woke heck yeah yeah exactly as far as it being a rich girl's diet you know to clarify i grew up in a housing project with a single mom who worked two jobs sure we had the tv dinner now and then or or the takeout food but it was also the 1970s who didn't right it was the thing it was like the thing to do but i do know one as a woman who grew up in a housing project with a single mom. And I do know as a mom of four kids who raised four kids on a school teachers and a home birth midwife budget before the home birth midwifery thing was cool. You know, so we're talking like very modest income that it does, it is possible to absolutely eat this way without it breaking the bank. That's one thing. The other thing is, as you say, you know, it's a pay now or pay later situation. And it costs an enormous amount of life to end up with diabetes or any, you know, horrible condition that really does impact our quality of life, but also impacts our economy. But it does take time to prepare food. And so from that perspective, you know, I am very well aware that I have created an entrepreneurial lifestyle that allows me to work from home and slow cook my steel cut oats in the morning or marinate my salmon an hour before I'm going to prepare it for dinner. That said, there are so many ways to batch cook food, to save money by actually going to the store with a shopping list so that you're not actually wasting food. So you know, I won't disagree that there is an element of one having to make a very significant choice to put their time into this. On the other hand, the average American spends how much time a day on TV? You know, it's like eight hours a day now. So even if you just carved out one hour a day for food prep and do your shopping on Sundays or whatever day with your shopping list and your meal plan, it is very doable. And that I'm very clear about. And also you can get organics in more places. Now you can join a CSA. You can go to Walmart has a huge organics department. That said, again, I, I, I'm not discounting the fact that there are enormous swaths of our country where there are, where food apartheid is a very real thing. And it is very difficult to access some of the quality food that I'm talking about without really making an effort that might be beyond some people's means. And so within that, everything that one can do to learn to shop the box at the grocery store instead of the packaged foods, you know, get the whole foods, the fruits, the vegetables, the meats, the fish. And if you can't get organic, that's okay. Just do your best. The book has a lot of recipes in it too. Oh yeah, like a hundred something. So guys, get the book, get Hormone Intelligence and look at some of Aviva's prior work because there's a lot in there. Um, I love hormone ecology as a concept. 
Um, I do want to say one other thing about like when I'm living on the land, there are permanent residents there. And five days a week, they share meals in the evening. So you're only cooking once. And if you could create a food chain in your neighborhood where you basically have other allies and creating whole healthy meals and you each pick a day or two days and you support each other. Even when I was a single mom, there was a a man who was a single dad and he and I alternated nights cooking. He lived two doors down. So I would cook one night and bring his family meals and then he'd cook the next night and bring mine. And so, you know, we kind of did some work sharing for a while. Absolutely. And intergenerationally, that's a whole other thing. I was just talking with someone recently who's his in-laws Um, They are from another country and they cook their traditional food and they bring over enough food for the family, for for the kids, so the grandkids, you know, like the working parents have food prepared for them. And, you know, how can we engage our older people to be really meaningfully, like, you you think about um, whale, whales, you know, the female orca whales, they stop reproducing about 40 years before they die. And they become the ones who go out on the hunt for food. So the grandmother whales are the ones that are bringing the food back. Like how do we create this intergenerationality? And a lot of times too, folks will say, well, you know, I don't have time to cook because my kids, this, my kid, I'm like, well, get the family involved in it. Just do it together. It really is. I always feel a little bit funny about being a woman, encouraging women to get back in the kitchen, but you know, when it comes to food politics, there is a lot to be said for food sovereignty and the power we have with it over our bodies and our economic choices in our planet. Food sovereignty, you don't have to do it alone. You can redesign and re-engineer your embodiment with what you eat and what you don't eat, what you expose yourself and what you don't expose yourself to. So all of this stuff is is quite reinstating, I don't know, or revolutionary or both. So thank you. I adore you. Aww. I have some of those books that are behind you and I want the rest of them. Oh, (laughs) thank you. So um, come and find Aviva and please love your beautiful body. Love it, care for it, enjoy this life and this body. It's the one that you're guaranteed and we all want to see every single person shining their highest and best and most radiant light into the world. Thank you, Aviva. Thank you for having me in this wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you learned something new about hormones or about how to care for your beautiful being or how to live better on planet Earth. We're doing a series now on 10 kinds of love, and one of the kinds of love is philousia or self-love, and another one is ecophilia or the love of nature. I hope that this kind of inspires a little bit of both for you. So if you like this episode and learned something, please take a moment and copy the link and text it to someone who you think would benefit. I would love to hear from you. You can reach me at the.rose.woman on Instagram or at rosebudwoman, or just write to me, christine at rosewoman.com. I love comments and feedback and appreciate so much you being part of this community. Make this a beautiful day.